The Bible's impact on American culture is unmistakable. It has shaped our laws, social systems, and even language. People unknowingly quote Bible phrases every day. It's a tragedy that so many have used phrases such as the Good Samaritan, you reap what you sow and do unto others, but don't actually know the scriptures or the Savior to which they point. Hi and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler, here with Steve Wiggins with GroundworksMinistries.com. Steve, it's good to have you here today. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. The fruition of this ministry has really exploded, so we want to talk about that. But welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Just to back up a little bit for those folks who might not know Steve Wiggins, five-time Grammy Award-nominated musician for his band, Big Tent Revival, you pin, was it 10 number one yes. singles, mm-hmm. including two sets of Joneses, Choose Life and WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? Yes. So the journey has been crazy, right, up until 32 years of age when things took a turn. Yeah, well, everything took a turn. I'm trying to think of where I was at 32 years of age. That's probably when we shut the band down. I became a Christian when I was almost 21 years old, running track for Arkansas State University. Overheard a guy sharing the gospel with another guy, and I became a believer. Shortly after that, I was in a Bible study, and somebody said, uh, does anybody know any Jesus songs? And none of us did. We're all new believers. And then the next question was, does anybody own a guitar? And I was the guy that owned a guitar. And at that time, 1988, There was no Christian radio that was playing contemporary Christian music in Jonesboro, Arkansas at that time. And so if you wanted to know any of that kind of music, uh, you either had to just randomly go find it somewhere. and The Internet wasn't available to us. And so uh, the easier thing was to just write songs about what we were going through. That led me to Memphis, Tennessee, where I ended up connecting with Ardent Recording Studio. And eventually they uh, started a record company out of Ardent to distribute Christian music. So I ended up being one of the first artists on Ardent Records. A mutual friend of ours was, well, a couple of guys, actually. Oh, yeah. uh, Dana Key, for one. Yes. And uh, Eddie DeGarmo. Yes. Course, they were part of the start of that record label, weren't they? They were. They were making the DeGarmo and Key records. And then uh, Ed and Dana started Forefront Records. And so Eddie moved to Nashville and Dana stayed here. I was playing down on Beale Street two doors down from B.B. King's Blues Club, right after they started it out, there was a guy named Tommy Peters, who's one of the investors there, and he owned a place called the Yellow Dog Cafe. Yeah. He bought a guitar from me that had been signed by B.B. King and John Lee Hooker and I think Albert Collins and Robert Cray, while B.B. was making a record, which eventually won a Grammy Award. And part of the deal was that he'd give me a standing gig on Beale Street while he applied for a liquor license for this place. So it's called the Yellow Dog Cafe. And he says, I can't get anybody to go in there because it just sells coffee and pie. And so um, we were in there and, and we were playing two nights a week, a Friday and Saturday night. We'd have standing room only, which sounds like a big deal, you know, with the line waiting outside, but the place couldn't probably hold more than 30 people. Dana Key came down one night and saw a line outside the door for guys that were Christians in there singing songs about Jesus. And it wasn't shortly after that that they formed Ardent Christian music, and we were off to the races. What a journey. Yeah, that band took off. Steve, something I remember about the late Dana Key, which I miss Dana a lot. Mm -hmm. He spent time here in the studio with us. But one of the things I know that Dana was doing in those early days was teaching the Bible at the clubs, finding some public places, Mm -hmm. if you will, to share the Word. And that's really part of where you're going 
today with the ministry you're connected with now, which is Groundworks Ministries, yes. having public places to share the word. Was Dana an influence in any way in that? He wasn't a direct influence in that, although I will say that Eddie DeGarmo and uh, Dana Key were very influential in that they were very evangelistic. There was an era of Christian music when pretty much everybody got into it with a crusade mentality. That is, that they they wanted to attract a crowd using rock music, but the whole purpose of it at the end of the night was not just to sell tickets or to sell albums. Yeah. But the whole purpose of it was to come to a moment in the evening where you would stop everything, share the gospel, and then give an invitation where people could make a public profession of their faith. Those guys were in it for that very reason, and they were very influential with us. Our very first tour was with DeGarmo and Keys. So to be on a tour bus with those guys and to have those values reinforced on a daily basis, they didn't just talk about the Bible, they read it, and they could discuss it in depth. And so we were pretty young, not only young in terms of in our early 20s, but we were also pretty young in our faith. My baptism certificate said 1988. By 1990, I had a record deal on Sparrow Records and then had records all over the world by 91. Well, you think about it, that's spring of 88 to spring of 91, and here I was kind of thrust into the spotlight. And some might not realize, too, that Dana had just about completed a degree at Mid-South Bible College here in Memphis when Pat Boone got that demo copy that really launched he and Eddie's career, went on from there. And Dana also finished his degree at Crichton. Yes, he did. Came back and finished Mm -hmm. that. Take us to Cool Springs Starbucks in Franklin, Tennessee, January 2001. What's the drink you ordered that day? Do you remember? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I only order one drink ever, so it's not hard to remember. Uh, I ordered an Americana with with half and half. That's, there you go. That was the idea. What had happened was I had been all over the world. We'd played in all 50 states, so probably over 1,000 concerts. We saw 10,000 people plus make public professions of faith in Jesus Christ just from the events that we were part of. I found myself you know, now stepping out of the music business and wondering, okay, well, what am I going to do? And I had enough money from that season to sort of live for a couple of years. But then the question is, what are you going to do with your time? You know, because you're no longer getting on a tour bus at midnight in Cool Springs on a Thursday and then be a muck in America and then come back sometime on Sunday or Monday. I just found myself reading the Bible, opening up the Bible and just personally connecting with the Lord And the Bible came alive to me during that season in a way that it had never happened. And I'd find myself sitting there, and friends of mine, colleagues, would be having their meetings before their record company meetings at the Starbucks. And then after that meeting, they'd all come back to the same Starbucks, have another cup of coffee, and talk about their meeting. And all these artists were doing it. There was only two Starbucks in Nashville at that time, one by Vanderbilt and the one at Cool Springs. And that was kind of the premium thing. And yeah, think about yeah, it in yeah. the mid to late nineties, people would come up to me and they'd say, "Steve, hey, what's going on? What do you, you know? What are you doing? You know, these days." It felt like John Lennon, where he said, "You know, people say, surely you're not happy now. You no longer play the game, right?" In his song, "Watching the Wheels," I kind of felt that way. And I'd say, "Well, you know, I'm just reading the Bible." And I said, "What's going on in your life?" And they would start sharing what's happening in their career or with their families or things like that. And I just found myself more and more saying, oh, well, you know, it's funny. I just read about that in the Bible just the other day. And I'd kind of flip back or, hey, I was just reading this thing and I, and I would be sharing with them. And I found myself almost in a pastor position, but I was just sitting there reading the Bible because I didn't really have anything else to do. 
I was trying to figure out what yeah. is the next phase of my career. I got an opportunity to move to actually Chicago to uh, work for Willow Creek. And I was on the team at Willow Creek that developed multi-site church, which now thousands of churches around the world do. And I was hired to try to develop systems for recruiting and communicating, scheduling musicians all over suburban Chicago. And after working with that for about a year and a half, I got a call from Greg Laurie. Uh, who you guys? Yeah, Har- Greg Laurie is yes, on Harvest Fellowship. Yes, yes, Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside. We had done the Harvest Crusades with him for like four and a half years. Everywhere that he did one, we would be there. Yeah, and Choose Life I wrote as an invitation song for Greg Laurie. It was when I went to work for Greg, and Greg said, "Well, I want to start three of these campuses like within the next couple of months." And so I went out looking for people. And I kind of had a demographic that I was going for. I needed people between 18 and 25 years old, single with the car, that you could schedule various places around in these remote sites where they'd show a video of Greg preaching, but you had to have live music. As I looked around, I I had a hard time finding them. I discovered that they had 2,000 kids in their high school group. Well, man, that's a mega church. Yeah. But there was less than 100 in the college group. To me, that was a leading indicator of something. That doesn't seem normal. Eight churches within 10 miles, and yet you have less than 100 in your college group, and you have Greg Laurie, who's one of the premier communicators and really known still as a person who really identifies with youth, and youth identify with his preaching style. So I started finding these people, asking them, uh, do you go to the college group? And if they didn't go to the college group, I started inviting them to my home. In my home... I would ask him one question. I just want to have groups. And here's the question. Why don't you go to the college group? And here's the answers. I don't like the name of the group. I don't like the day they meet. I don't like the time that they meet. I don't like the guy that teaches. I don't like the music. I don't like the other people that show up. They're weird. So there was no causality. There was no one reason why they all... If they all said, hey, you know, well, the teacher has an odor and we don't like his odor. Well, that's easy. We'll buy him some deodorant or some cologne or something. And we've found the cause of why they're not there. But everybody had a different answer, but they were all consumer-driven answers. Two things, really, that were consistent with all of them were none of them could name the Ten Commandments. Although you don't have to know that to be a Christian, but it's just an interesting indicator And then none of them had ever read the New Testament, much less the Bible. So what I had in my living room over this series of meetings were highly functioning within the church culture, biblical illiterates. Mm. And now we know from 2017 with LifeWay's research, less than 11% of Americans have ever read the Bible cover to cover. Only 9% have ever read it more than one time. What I found were they had never read the Bible. But that's consistent throughout the nation today, we know. I said, not only are you not done with church, because that was their primary thing that they were saying, you know, I think I'm kind of done with church. So not only are you not done with church, you've never done it. You've never done it the way God designed it. Church is not just a thing that you go to and once a week and you hear a sermon, and that's not going to affect your life long term. No. And yet, sadly, I think a lot of churches don't see the value of their people being in the Word every day to the extent that they would take the time to develop some type of a strategy. Yes. And you wonder why so many college students, when they leave high school and they leave their church world, fall away and they succumb to the intellectual thought of the world through college and their professors intimidate them about what you learn in your churches or from your home. Right. 
and I know young people who have now become atheists who grew up in the church right. as a result of that. You know, it's yes. heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And I found that there was these kids that they couldn't be conversant with the Bible. So maybe over the course of their lives, if they were taken to church their whole life and they've gone all the way up until high school, maybe they had bits and pieces of Bible verses that they kind of held on to in a moment. But for the most part, they weren't articulate. They could not have a conversation with somebody aside from things which were learned by rote. And what I took these kids to was not kind of pointing them at what a church had done or had not done for them. But I just took them back to Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, uh, on the day that God gave the word to the people, God said, this word which I'm giving you today is to be on your heart. And then he said, here's how you use it. Teach it diligently to your children and then discuss it in every activity that you're involved in. And he lists those activities. And then Psalm 78 says that the Lord has commanded that the fathers would teach their children the word of the Lord. Those children would then teach their children, and then those children would teach a generation yet to rise up. And so I told these kids, I said, you know, the vehicle which the Lord developed in order to perpetuate biblical values in a culture is not the church, per se. It is the home, the home led by a father. And then a church is a gathering, typically, of those homes led by fathers who seek the Lord, supported by mothers who seek the Lord, mom and dad working in concert to live the word of the Lord and share it with their kids. And then you have a culture of people who then come together and worship. Yeah, but you know, Steve, we first have to come to the Bible as absolute authority. When we say the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God yes. in its original text, right? some people say, what does that mean? Right. If we don't have an understanding of that prior to going to the Scripture, it's just a book of stories. Well, it is and it isn't, because here's what happens. You can't get that value which you just put forth. You can't get that value of the, of the Word of God as the inerrant Word of God. You can't start with that. You have to start with go to the Bible. And then the Holy Spirit will teach you that. First John 2.27, speaking of the Holy Spirit, this is why it's important to be a Christian, because without Jesus, you don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit, yes. right? The Bible says in First John 2.27, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you, for he teaches you in all things. And as he teaches you and is true and is not a lie, as he teaches you, so you will abide in him. So what happens is, first, you have to live in a community of some sort. The best community would be family. That's why Satan attacks the family so much, because it's that institution which God created to perpetuate biblical values. The secondary community would be a church community. To me, that's the high-performance tire. But if the high-performance tire has a blowout, you put a donut tire on it. And the donut tire is typically expected to take you to a shop so you could fix the high-performance tire. So the donut tire, with respect to purveying biblical values and sustaining them within a culture, the donut tire would be the church And the idea is that the family is the primary driver for biblical values. But if there is a blowout on the highway, the church becomes the secondary institution, which then takes over. But ultimately, to get the family repaired and put back on the car, 
so that the family still continues on as the driver. Well, we lost the family how many generations ago? Oh, my. Right? Yeah. So now what happens is, is the reason why I say it's a donut tire is that primarily most people utilize church once or twice a week for maybe one or two hours of Bible lessons, which they may or may not be completely focused on in those times. But Satan comes at you every day, all day, from every angle of your life. So that's why when God said, this word I'm giving you today shall be on your heart, the idea is the men of Israel would be in the word of the Lord every day. And then he says, and then talk about it everywhere you go. So they should be people who seek the word of the Lord, know it, can share it with anyone, anywhere at any time, and then you have children who grow up in that environment, and now there you have the values are set. Because values are not taught. I can't teach you to have a value. I can only teach you lessons. Lessons are taught. Values are caught. That's why it's important for Christians to be in the Word of the Lord every day, not just so that they can garner an aggregate amount of biblical information or memorize a certain number of verses. That in and of itself won't change your values. The values are changed by the time which is spent with the Holy Spirit. And having a relationship with the living God and learning what his right. plan is and, and what he desires to accomplish in your life. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's great. Yes. So this really is the groundwork, the fertile thing yes. that really laid the foundation from your experience yes. to build the Groundworks Ministries. Right. Groundworks Ministries is really the probably the reason why we're even here talking today. And if anybody is interested, in, in, and I hope you are, but it's a groundworksministries.com. So groundworksministries.com, and you could learn a lot more information about it. So you've actually written a chapter-by-chapter devotional of the entire Bible. Yes, and here's how that happened. So now I'm, I'm in these meetings with young people, and they're saying they're just about done with church. I say, you're not done with church. You've never started it. And I said, give me 90 days, and there's 89 chapters in the Gospels. So give me 90 days, we'll get to Acts chapter 1, because I know and you know that the fireworks go off in Acts chapter 2. So here is what we're going to do. Let's take 90 days, we're going to read the Bible a chapter every day. So we're going to come here next week, I'm going to teach Matthew chapter 1, and then tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2 and I'm going to write a devotional, something that the Lord showed me when I read that chapter. And then the next day, I'll write one for Matthew 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And then when we come together next week, I'll teach Matthew 8 in its entirety. So we'll start with verse 1, and we'll read all the way through it. So I'm teaching Matthew 1, 8, 15, 22, and we're rolling through the Bible in such a way. And what happened was we just started taking off. Like we hit 30 in my living room, and I had a small living room in Southern California. Then we went to a coffee house in Riverside called the Coffee Depot, and it was the old Riverside train depot. We started meeting in the baggage room there. So 30 became 50, became 75, became 100. Now we're starting to push over 150, you know, special events and things. And a friend of mine says, bro, we got to get a bigger room. And I said, no, no, if we get a bigger room, it's going to become a church. And they said, well, what's wrong with that? And I said, well, number one, when you work for a church, they hate it when you take all their young people and go down the street and start a church. So I'm not going to do that to my friends. I mean, yeah. Greg Laurie is a good friend of mine, yeah. right? 
and I love my job and I love who I work for. And I'm not looking at doing something that would replace what church does. I'm just trying to take people who don't know the Word and I'm trying to get them into the Word. Because being in the Bible every day sets forth sort of a domino effect where if you elevate biblical pursuit, then you elevate faith because the Bible says faith comes by hearing right. and, and hearing, hearing by God. the Word yes. of God. Yes. And so what I'm doing is I'm setting up a daily appointment with the Holy Spirit in the Word of the Lord. So as they're meeting with the Holy Spirit, He's the one who teaches you in all things. So as He's teaching them and He's shaping their values as they're in the Word, now their faith is elevating. Well, when you elevate faithfulness, then you elevate volunteering, sharing what the Lord has imparted to you. Okay, Sometimes through service, sometimes through testimony. And then when you do that, Now, all of a sudden, resources start to come up because where your heart is and where your heart's being affected and where you're being transformed, that's then where you want to come back and reinvest. Direct your treasures. And direct your treasures that way. Yeah. This is exciting, Steve, because Groundworks Ministries has become a worldwide community from this humble beginnings of a coffee shop or in the living room at your home, spreading to multiple communities in the U.S., Europe, Middle East, Africa, and South America. What do you attribute this to? Just people discovering that God's Word is alive and applicable to their lives, and they can discover their identity that God wants them to know (laughs) through learning the Word. I mean, what is it? What's the key to it? I mean, I'm sure all of it. You know, if I could put it into 10 points, I'd probably sell a book. We call it Groundworks. It is the groundwork. It's the base level of what discipleship is. I was in a meeting with several pastors several months ago. The question came up, you know, what is discipleship? This should be the thing that they teach you on day one in seminary, right? Because the Great Commission is go and make disciples. It was bizarre to see grown men who'd spent most of their lives in ministry struggling to answer the question of what is discipleship. And they're like, wow, it really kind of stumped me. And I sat there and I thought to myself, maybe I'm the dense one. Maybe this should be harder than I think that it is. But the root of discipleship is discipline. And whenever you become a disciple, you are disciplined to something, by something, and for something. Okay? To be a a disciple of Jesus, you're disciplined to the Word of the Lord by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of the Great Commission. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. And the problem is, is that when you have people who grow up in a culture of church, which is always doing everything for them and asking very little from them, then what happens is, is that you're going to perpetually be a sheep who never transforms into a shepherd who never takes up for themselves, as the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, the second half of chapter 5, and going through the whole of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he talks about how not only were you dead in your sin and, and, and Christ died for you so that you could be reconciled, but you become ministers of the word of reconciliation, and that eventually you're now ambassadors speaking on behalf of the Lord, and then he says, and then he's literally pleading through you. So you just become a conduit at that point where he's working through you. But you can't share what you don't have. So if you become a ministry adrenaline junkie who always has to go to church and be entertained, then you're only going to view your Christian experience by the level to which your church is entertaining you. And then what happens is if anybody ever asks or requires anything of you, as in to, hey, why don't you, let's go out and share our faith today, you ask, you say, well, well, how much faith do I even have to share and how much time have I spent 
and learning how to articulate it. And what's interesting about spending a daily amount of time with the Holy Spirit is he's teaching you every single day. He's adjusting your value system every single day. When you're in the Word, and surely you've had this happen before, when you're in the Word and people come to you and they have a question. I remember the first time as a young believer when I first started really getting serious about the Word of the Lord and somebody asked me a question, and all of a sudden, I remember after I gave the answer that I was almost blown away but it was what the Holy Spirit had done in me yes. to put the data into my mind yes. so that then when I open my mouth, I'm speaking forth what he has put in. Therefore, he's speaking through me, and it is exactly what that person needed. And the first time it happened, it blew my mind. And what I saw in California, instead of getting a bigger room, we got another room and another room and another room. So by the time I left California, we had over 2,000 people who were reading the Bible, getting an email every single day with a devotionalist walking them through the Bible. And we have over a dozen locations all throughout what they call the Inland Empire and into Orange County, California. And these people are going out in groups of two or three, and they're just what we used to say, which is share what you know and grow as you go. And they'd say, well, I don't know the whole Bible. And I'd say, it's okay. The people that you're teaching, they don't know any Bible. So make sure that the Bible that you know is right. Yes. It's the right thing. So I'll help you with that. But now go out and share what you know, and then grow as you go. And when you have the task of imparting the Bible to somebody else, you read it from a whole other perspective. When you, when you say, have to communicate this to somebody else, why churches typically don't do this, some have been convinced that you have to do certain things in order to attract people, and then once you've attracted them, then you have to do things to keep them here. And our goal as Christians, or as even church leaders, is not to attract and keep people. Our goal is to be faithful to the Word of the Lord. Anything that we can do to transition these sheep to become shepherds That's the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, people who are disciplined to be in the Word, disciplined by the Holy Spirit, and then you develop community around that process. And then they then, as they're being transformed, will then become ministers of the Word of Reconciliation because they're in it. And I think that the Lord wants, not just for preachers or or super advanced level preachers, PhDs with multiple degrees, I don't think he just wants those people to have a comprehensive knowledge of the Word. All of the men of Israel were commanded to know it to the level where they could diligently teach it. And I feel like that's where we've lost. And if we don't get back to it, revival doesn't happen. Well, that wraps up day one of our conversation with Steve Wiggins and his passion to address biblical illiteracy through GroundworksMinistries.com. I hope you'll go to that website, GroundworksMinistries.com, to begin your journey of biblical discipleship. Now, maybe you've been a Christian most of your life, but have not stepped into your faith totally like we've discussed today. It's never too late. We'll continue this conversation on tomorrow's Mid-South Viewpoint with Steve Wiggins, again at GroundworksMinistries.com. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. I'm Byron Tyler. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.